0: Welcome to Pod Academy. My name is Craig Barfoot. Today, I'm talking to author and financial campaigner, Brett Scott. Brett has written for publications like The Guardian and The New Internationalist. He's a former derivatives broker who has a new book called The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money. Brett Scott, thanks a lot for talking to me. Uh, Anytime. Brett, in the title of your book, you talk about hacking the future of money. Can you explain your idea of hacking in relation to the financial system?
1: So, I mean, in a nutshell, the sort of idea behind hacking is, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's often misrepresented in the press, but, but the basic idea is it's kind of creative disruption, um, or perhaps creative rebellion. So, ideally, uh, what hackers are trying to do is, let's, let's, take, the, let's take the example of technology. Uh, let's take a computer hacker. Your objective is you want to explore a computer to a point where you can basically see all the interconnections and in how a computer works. all right? And that includes the hardware and it includes the software as well, the code. So a computer hacker on one level should be an expert explorer of computer systems. So there's a big like exploration ethos in it. So if you're applying it to an economic system, a big element of hacking is just the sheer joy and curiosity of exploring an economic system. I mean, I quite like that for a start for as an educational approach to finance, because you're like, well, think about this huge system, almost as if it was a, a giant piece of technology, and now I'll go and explore it, I guess. That's sort of like, I guess, the, the first pillar of my approach. The second pillar, going back to the sort of technology hacking analogy, is that what, what hackers will do once they've explored a system is that they'll move into trying to find out the vulnerabilities in that system and how they can be exploited. And this is perhaps your traditional public view of what hacking is, you know, the, the sort of people who break into stuff and so on. In the context of taking that analogy and applying it to the financial system, once you've explored the financial system enough, you start to see where all the various weak points are and, when, and sort of creative ways you can exploit those. Um, so examples I use in the book include, you know, shareholder activism is a very simple example of a type of um, economic hacking, um, where you're taking a financial instrument, and you're kind of using its internal dynamics to protest the way a company works. And then the sort of third pillar of hacking is what's called the, the, the DIY ethos, the do it yourself ethos, because actually, once you've explored a system enough, you start to understand how you can rewire its, com- its, its components. So in the context of you're sort of technology hacking, you're talking about, you know, people who take apart a phone and remake it into like a film projector or whatever they want to do. You know, it's just kind of there's, a whole sort of, there's a whole sort of subculture of people who try and rewire technology in certain ways. Um, and this, to me, is a very um, exciting aspect of hacking. And when you apply it to economic systems, you start to talk about, you know, what alternatives can you build? So once you've un- uncovered the dynamics of an existing system, you can start to think about, well, how could I tinker with the design of currency? How could I tinker with lending systems, how can I tinker with the psychology of these things such, to, uh, such as to create a better version of it.
0: Then let's take shareholder activism as an example. Can you explain how it works and how activists use this process to highlight issues within a company?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, mean, I, I guess a shareholder activism is comparatively well known as a financial activist technique um, and it's basically where you buy a share. And thereby gain access to a company, because basically a share is a financial technology, which I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an ownership claim on a on a company. So if you're if you possess a share, you are technically an owner of a company, or have a tiny percentage ownership in at least. So a lot of um, campaign groups have caught on to this idea that well, you can buy shares, and therefore you can you're effectively. Um, you can buy shares in companies that you want to change and then you can go along to their AGMs and ask them questions or else you can try and you know, lobby the directors in various ways. And this has been used, I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's a sort of tactic. It's not, it's not a sort of profound strategic thing that's going to change an entire company, but it's a useful um, tool in the arsenal of various campaign groups. And so it's been used periodically for you know for quite a while now. But I guess what I'm interested to see is how the realm of shareholder activism can be scaled up a lot more. So I'm thinking about... So so shareholder activism as it stands right now is individuals who buy shares in companies and then try and sort of cause trouble, as it were. But I think there's a large scope for people to do it on a much larger scale. So sort of whole unions of people basically um, acting in concert with each other within companies. But I guess, I mean... You also got to think about that the, there's a dual purpose to why, why you might want to do this kind of stuff, this or quote unquote you know, economic or financial hacking, is on the one hand, something like shareholder activism technically can be useful in a campaign. On the other hand, what it also does, it's a really interesting way to get a much more intuitive feel for how companies work. So there's always an educational aspect to this as well. So, while, whilst I'm a campaigner on the outside of a company, um, you know, I might research how BP works or I might, you know, I might, you know, know about all the injustices of BP and so on. But I always feel like an external outsider to that company. The act of engaging in something like shareholder activism, regardless of whether it's effective or not. Gives me a much more um, grounded and intuitive sense for what really happens inside the company. Once you start to actually try and tap into the mentality of the shareholders in that company, you get a much more, I guess, real understanding of what of what that the beast is, as it were.
0: Okay, then with regard to understanding, there's a commonly held belief that bankers and people working in the financial industry are driven by greed. But uh, somewhat surprisingly, given the nature of your book, you argue that this stereotype is not exactly correct.
1: I mean, I suppose this is where um, my anthropological background comes into play. Um, I studied anthropology and what anthropologists attempt to do is look at the dynamics of any system and think about what's driving the human Um, the human element of a system, the individual people in a system. Um, And if you ever actually go into any particular industry and look at what drives people, it's a whole variety of different things. And in the financial industry, sure, there's a big um, material motive to why people may be there. But in and of itself, that's not a sufficient condition. To There's there's a lot more at play. Um, I guess in the book, I go into... Uh, cultural reasons, there's a lot of people who are pushed into the financial sector via family pressures and so on, um, or via, you know, precedent from their parents. Um, But there's also um, a big intellectual aspect to it, which I think is frequently overlooked. If you if you go into a situation, assuming that all the people in a particular industry have a certain moral quality to them, i.e. that they are um, greedy individuals, you are very unlikely to actually be a kind of be a sort of a mental state where you're likely to see their actual characteristics. So if you have a whole bunch of preconceptions about how people are, and you walk into a cultural system like that, you're probably going to continue to hold that that preconception. Let's talk for a moment about a growing area in the
0: financial industry, and perhaps a controversial one: socially responsible investment. First of all, how do socially responsible investment funds work?
1: Uh well, <laughs> good question. I mean, it's uh, the SRI industry, social responsible investment industry is, is quite a interesting but problematic one at the same time. In essence, an ordinary fund um, is something you put money into and then it invests money, that money for you. So in an ordinary, say, pension fund, um, I put money into it and then it invests in various real projects around the world. So that's sort of traditional investment. And as you can imagine, your ordinary pension funds and these various funds pe- people have their savings in invest in a lot of businesses which are damaging in many ways. So you know, an example is the fossil fuel industry. That's a particularly um, well-known one. But then you know, there's the you know the weapons industry. There's loads of problematic industries. So your idea about your sort of socially responsible investment fund is well, let's create a fund which, if I put my money into it, it steers the the cash only into positive things and it sounds great on paper of course but i mean it's it's uh it remains a tiny industry compared to the normal fund industry so i mean it's i guess a lot of people in in sort of campaign movements have have a have a, have a, a sort of problematic relationship with the socially responsible investment fund industry because it almost seems like you know you'll have a massive fund management house offering socially responsible investment funds as something on the side but, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're people who are concerned about social justice just say, well, all funds should be like that. Why do you offer it as a sort of niche product offering on the side while you're offering all these non-social responsible investment funds? Um, so that's a sort of a constant ongoing dynamic in the industry. But if I choose not to invest
0: in a company for social or environmental reasons, then someone else who doesn't share my views will invest in that company. My not investing just won't have any impact.
1: So how does this process bring about any results? So actually, let's let's take it to the divestment movement, um, which is sort of going on. The divestment movement, which you're seeing through groups like 350.org and these various other groups, who are calling for, say, university endowments to divest from fossil fuel companies and to invest in socially responsible investment um, funds and so on. There's a there's a there's a dual a sort of strategy at play. So on the one hand, there's this kind of theoretical economic impact is that if I take my money out of something like a fossil fuel company, you know, maybe it, it, it impacts that company and, and I push my money into say renewable energy, perhaps there's an economic effect, I, I help to spur the renewable energy industry. In reality, though, I mean, you need a lot of money to move out of fossil fuels to ever have any real impact on the industry. Um And I think groups like 350 understand this very clearly. I mean, what they're really trying to do via the act of divestment and by the act of of putting money into socially responsible stuff is to set a cultural precedent and to push the political debate. Um, so as soon as you can get, let's well, say one major investor, let's say, you know, a large, a large, uh, church fund or a large pension fund to say, Hey, you know, we're actually going to pull out of these various industries. You actually set a cultural precedent for the rest of the sector. Uh, so you, your ideal campaign victory is to try and get a few high-profile divestments out of out of negative industries, and in so doing, force the debate and force a kind of uh, a cultural shift. Because if you can imagine back in time, let's take, you know, the 1800s um, or the 1700s, you know, lots of things which are considered perfectly normal to invest in back in those times um, are now considered completely unacceptable. So, for example, child labor is a, is a very well-quoted example of this, you know. So your socially responsible investment funds, as it were, back in the sort of 1800s, would have been protesting against, you know, the use of slave labor and things like that. And, you know, a single, you know, those small acts in and of themselves didn't necessarily do anything, but they kind of gradually pushed the cultural debate. Um, And I guess that's where you have to sort of think about fit the, the socially responsible investment movement now as well. I mean, that's at least how I think about
0: it. So you think the socially responsible investment industry won't in itself bring about any substantial changes to the financial industry?
1: Well, I mean it depends on how you how you define substantial changes. I think it already has made subtle changes in many ways. I mean it's it's increasingly unacceptable for your standard fund management house to disregard socially responsible investment they all kind of have to pay lip service to it at the very least and that's a sign of it's not a sign of like a deep economic change but it's a sign of a sort of at some level a a change in norms it's no longer acceptable for a fund manager just to completely disregard it at least you know that might not be very comforting to the average you know environmentalist but it's something at least
0: yeah and it seems another problematic area for this industry is incorporating social and environmental values into financial measurement. How do you financially measure social benefit
1: and can you? Okay. So your traditional financial industry basically measures investment returns in terms of the money it gets back from investments. So AKA I put in X amount of money. I leave it there for in, into an, uh, an investment for a certain amount of time. And over time, I get X amount of money back. I compare how much I put in versus how much I get back. And that's my financial return in terms of money. And then I say I'm a success or I'm not a success, depending on that. Your social finance industry and, you know, the various sort of socially responsible investment type stuff is trying to say, hey, there's more than just a financial return. Or loss to, to investment projects. There's also, you know, social returns and environmental returns or social losses and environmental losses, which are sort of, um, euphemistically referred to in mainstream economics as externalities. So the question comes in with the social finance movement is how do you, find a way to measure those social benefits or social losses to investments such that you can sort of quantify them within investment models of course there's i mean like if you think about what a social return is it's something, it's something like i have a safer community that's a social return there's no way of me quantifying how uh what what a money terms what a safer community means i can find vague sort of proxies for it i can be like well you know i've saved money on how much i previously had to spend on security guards or uh i'm feeling less stressed as a result of being able to walk down the street without worrying so i'm saved my medical bills so there's various sort of ways you can sort of quantify in terms of money but they're never to be are vague and spurious but there is a
0: push to incorporate these considerations into the system Uh, do you see them having any success
1: well you can see what they're trying to do is that is that you're trying to use the language of an existing economic ideology and sort of or and not only I mean I say ideology but you know an economic methodology that people have got used to and you're trying to use that as a way to sort of infiltrate social and uh considerations and one way you might do that is say say well I can quantify it in terms of money and that somehow makes it kind of more scientific or something <laughs> I mean so, so I guess that that's the reason that you're doing it and in a way I'm 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 kind of agnostic on what I think about that. Actually, in reality, you know, if you are an investor and you're like, well, I have to be able to put my money to good use, sometimes quantifying things is what you have to do to, to show what kind of returns you get from something. And, um, so there's a certain social reality to having to quantify stuff. On a, on a deeper level, though, there's something deeply unsatisfactory about this idea that you have to quantify everything in order for it to be viewed as valid. You know, there's a whole swathe of material around now on what's called, you know, ecosystem services. Now we're talking about environmental, the environmental world, which is like, okay, let's quantify the value of natural systems such that we can invest in them. And I can, on one hand, I can sort of see why this exists, but on on a deeper level, you take a step back and you're like, you know, what on earth are you talking about? You're talking about the ecological system that sustains all life. Its value is infinite. Um, you would not exist without it. So the sort of spurious attempt to attach monetary values is, is, is completely illogical.
0: But surely we have to incorporate social and environmental impact into the financial system or, well, at least find an alternative. Uh, is there an alternative?
1: Well, this is, I suppose, the ongoing debate. And I guess what I quite like about my, I guess, the sort of hacker approach that I take is is it kind of allows you to sort of perhaps come deal with some of these contradictions because, you know, like a a lot of, um, if you think about what, let's go back to technology hacking, often what you're trying to do is you're taking an an existing technology and you're trying to tinker with it and mess around with it and play with it creatively. Um, So, and hackers love that kind of thing. And actually, so if you start to think about financial instruments as, you know, there's an existing dogma, of what a financial instrument is, but you can start to bend the boundaries if you start to play sort of creatively play with the language and so on. So actually, if you there's a certain subtle subversiveness in a lot of the, the sort of social finance, environmental finance um, world, uh, albeit it's not frequently thought about like that. But you know, I, I can see when I when I see say a green bond, um, part of me is aware. You know, as a sort of uh, you know my sort of real deep ecological side, I, I can see there's something very spurious about about something like um, an attempt to quantify green values. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, this is pretty cool. you know, I, I'm taking an existing financial instrument and I'm and I'm trying to alter its DNA in some way such that it actually ends up doing something different to what the original financial instrument did. So a lot of these kind of um, financial innovations can be quite subversive, but it it depends to some extent on um, I guess the point I go into into the book. Is that if you want a lot of these social finance and environmental finance innovations to be really um, transformative you actually have to make sure there's constant radical input into them i.e. you can't allow something like your social impact bond to be co-opted by goldman sachs to end up uh, so it ends up basically as something that they use for their, their sort of pr campaigns which is what they often do now
0: then finally brett what do you see as an important step in bringing change to the industry I'm interested very much in
1: the educational aspect of this. When you say something like quote unquote financial education, it sounds like something very boring and it also sounds like something a bit niche. And I'm really interested in how you break down that idea, not just because I think you know you people need some sort of technical knowledge about finance, but because I think the financial industry is so deeply embedded in everyone's lives that the lack of um, an ability to grapple with it is really, really problematic on many levels. And I think there needs to be a lot of work to be done to to sort of find out ways to teach finance and economics in a way which brings it really home to people into their everyday actions. The mainstream financial industry thrives off the lack of knowledge that people have. It's an entire industry built by it's a technocratic industry that that would it exists largely because people are too too uh, scared to challenge it.
0: Brett, thank you very much for talking to me. Brett Scott is the author of the new book The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance.